Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this evening. Got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. Coming back uh, to the show after his first appearance here, I have Charles Haywood of the Worthy House. Charles, thanks for coming on. I am even more pleased to be here than first time. Excellent. I'm glad that your ple the amount of pleasure you have returning has increased. All right. So <laughs> you it seems that you are uh, perhaps now the most dangerous man on the right. We have mainstream uh, conservatives warning against you. Uh, you're you're corrupting the youth. Uh, very, very terrible things. I, I wanted to bring you on because I talked a little bit about uh, kind of your situation with Dave, the distributist on our streams about friends and gatekeepers. But as we were getting the conversation, I realized, wait, I, I know this guy. We can actually talk about it. So uh, I figured it would be a, a good idea to have you on. So maybe we could start a little bit at the beginning. It seems like the thing that got this started uh, was your ass assertion of a principle, or at least if not a principle, an idea that uh, no, uh, no enemies to the right. This, this phrase seems to have triggered Rob uh, Dreyer into writing about you. I think that's kind of where things kicked off. Could you catch people up a little bit if they're not familiar? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I feel a little bit bad punching up on uh, Rod Dreyer because he's so very punchable and people have been punching on him a lot recently. Uh, in fact, um, I think everyone's familiar with the famous meme of the pink-haired woman, or I think she was pink-haired, screaming after Trump was inaugurated and someone said that his friends on the left think of Rod Dreher as the right-wing equivalent of that woman. So I feel a little bit bad adding to the cacophony of people beating up on Dreher, but I think this is important. And I don't, you know, I like Dreher and I, I, I think he's done a lot of valuable work, uh, though I think as you also correctly identified with, with Dave, the distributist, performative outrage has become his thing. But focusing on the narrow question of, of no enemies to the right, Dreyer apparently, and I honestly have never gone and looked into the details because, as I, I said in a piece that I wrote later, uh, I don't care. Dreyer led a witch hunt against a guy who I believe was headmaster at a classical Christian academy that I believe some or all of his children attended in Baton Rouge. And in typical Dreyer fashion, who, who likes to uh, say that anyone to his right is ipso facto a bad person, he was leading this witch hunt against this, this guy. And I just commented on Twitter. I saw it pop up because I follow Dreyer. And I, I commented on his lengthy screed, who cares? No enemies to the right. And as you say, this kind of triggered Rod. Um, you know, Rod's pretty easy to trigger, I guess. But uh, And I know Rod somewhat. I mean, acquaintances. Though I, I, he blocked me on Twitter and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm off his Christmas card list now. So, yeah. <laughs> so but I still do pay $300 a year for his Substack because, you know, I can't help myself. Um, but uh, he, he wrote a piece basically saying that uh, people who say this are very bad. Uh, they're, you know, Nazis and just generally just terrible human beings without naming me, referring to the Twitter comment, but, but without naming me. So the, the excellent online magazine, I am 1776, uh, suggested a dialogue between me and Daniel Miller discussing this, this question. And so we wrote this, and I thought my section of it was was pretty pithy and, and pretty punchy. And he published it <clears throat> maybe two weeks after the original thing. I actually assumed that Dreo would just ignore it. Uh, but instead, he went all, you know, crazy and started writing lengthy screeds with giant pictures of myself picked deliberately to make me look bad. I mean, it's very hard to make me look bad, but, you know, it brought me down to like a six or a seven on a, on a 10 scale. And it was very offensive to me. And so, but more to the point, he, he, he you know, made Nazi references to me and compared me to indirectly to Oswald Mosley, you know, the leader of the British black shirts, the fascists and the run up to World War II. And, you know, just generally, and he didn't, of course, a single time address a single point that I had made, which were very detailed and very lengthy about the importance of this tactical principle, no enemies to the right. It, rather than engaging in this, he he maundered on and on about supposed but non-existent personal invective and how I was a Nazi and that Nazis are bad. It, it was very kind of tiresome and disappointing, frankly. Yeah. And, and like you said, I don't want to focus so much on the back and forth, Jer, because a, it's got a little feel of drama, and B, like you said, e easy, easy target, no, no fun. Um, I think that your discussion with Miller was far more 
nuanced and productive uh, because it was an actual yes. discussion. And everyone should read it if they haven't. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, if you haven't uh, read the actual discussion, you can go to I am seventeen seventy six and check it out there. But but I wanted to because we kind of touched on the topic and because I think this is an interesting time for the right. I think there are a lot more mainstream people who are fed up with what's going on and they want to listen to different voices and look at different ways of approaching issues. I think more people are paying attention to this space. And so I wanted to give you a chance to kind of flesh out in, in a longer discussion kind of what you meant by this. And, and at the end of this, kind of start pointing to what victory might look at like. Because as I was reading this discussion and looking at kind of the back and forth between you and Dreher and others, I started thinking to myself, what do people actually think that victory looks like? Like, what does that actually, uh, what does that end game actually look like to them? And, and I, I would be interested in kind of exploring that a little bit with you. But let, let's start at the beginning. In the, in the discussion on I'm 1776, you explain a little bit more about uh, no enemies to the right and what that actually means. Because Miller does have some, some criticism about it, saying it's too simplistic. It, 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 there's not enough nuance. It doesn't. It, it doesn't clarify things enough. Could you speak a little more on kind of what that phrase means to you? Sure. So uh, people sometimes ask me, leaving aside the winning condition and how winning would happen, what's mm -hmm. my goal in life, or rather, in political philosophy? And, and the goal is very simple. The goal is human flourishing, the flourishing of mankind, which means the flourishing, uh, maximize the flourishing of individuals and of Societies. And by society, I mean our society. I mean, I can't really speak to societies that are alien to the West. I, mean, I don't really know what the flourishing condition of a, a person who lives in China is necessarily, except for, for the very basics. And by flourishing, I don't mean Steven Pinker type flourishing, which is that we get lots of consumer goods and uh, and we live slightly longer than uh, than we used to. And that's human flourishing. I, I mean those things too, but I mean primarily a a spiritual or psychological flourishing. And my kind of core principle with respect to flourishing, I have a bunch of, of theories as to how societies, broadly speaking, can accomplish that, this, but my core principle is that the left prevents this. And th therefore, the left must be defeated. So people, of course, then say, well, what is the left? And the, the left is what we have seen in applied politics in the West since around 1750. Generally speaking, what is called the Enlightenment or what is accurately called the Enlightenment as opposed to all the things that people like to pull into the, into the bucket and name it Enlightenment in order to make it seem more appealing. So in, in this context, the Enlightenment means at its core, this is somewhat of a simplification, the twin set of political principles that revolve around unlimited emancipation from all unchosen bonds that are not freely continuously chosen, from all bonds that are not freely continuously chosen, and forced egalitarianism of all people, forced equality of all people. These things are the core of the left project that has dominated the West evermore since 1750. And it is this that is the weight on our chest that prevents human flourishing and has led us into the dead end that we are now in. And of course, as I say, the first step in solving your problems is admitting you have a problem. So uh, I, I think everyone should admit that this is the problem. And in order to address this problem, this entire philosophy should be exterminated uh, from the political thought of the West in order to enable human flourishing, which of course is not auto-generating thereafter, but it is the first step. And that's what I mean uh, when I say that there, I mean, very broadly, and we can get into the details. When I say no enemies to the right, I mean, it is important to focus on defeating the left and winning this particular battle of political philosophies so that we as a society can move forward. Yeah. And, and speaking of uh, fixing problems, there there are some audio issues, guys. I know, uh, Charles, you might want to try uh, muting when you're not speaking just because there's this weird feedback that's kind of coming through. Uh, when I talk, so that that might fix the problem there. Sorry about that, guys. We'll we'll Charles was having some kind of connection issue. I think his internet's okay, but there's there's something going on. We'll try to make make do with the best we can here. Uh, so, like you were talking about uh, the uh, the strategy of uh, no enemies 
to the right. I think that the uh, well, there's a couple different ways we can go. This, I guess, I'm looking at a few of Miller's objections, and I want to. I'm trying to think about how to best approach this. So maybe the first thing we can talk about is. The fact that he says that one of the problems with no enemies to the right is that it's uh, this. This is a statement that has no moral content, right? It has. It doesn't take any kind of morality into account. It's too nihilistic. I, I think that you fleshed it out a little bit later on, but but Miller's approach seems to be that basically your your uh, or rather his critique of your approach seems to be that you don't allow for any mistakes could be on the right, any kind of correction to the right. I don't think that's true. I think you were pointing more to like, this is, this is a public facing strategy that, you know, people would correct each other in private, that these things would be uh, fixed in a, in a, in a more um, uh, fraternal way, but that the public facing uh, aspect of the right should be one that's a united front against kind of removing those really uh, deleterious leftist influence that you were talking about. Could you get a little more uh, into maybe that explanation? Yeah, absolutely. We're not, I think no public enemies to the right is a good kind of uh, addendum because there's really mm. you know, two kinds of uh, enemies to the right. There's kind of current potential enemies and future potential enemies. So right now, my basic principle is that we're attempting to achieve certain political goals. And people who are useful allies in that struggle should not be uh, unnecessarily examined into opinions or beliefs or things they do that are objectionable, except in extreme cases, if it's irrelevant to whatever we're allying on right now. So there's all sorts of people on the right who I think that they're not very bright or that they have an inadequate morality or no morality, or that their views on a variety of things are, are just plain unpleasant. Like, I wouldn't want my daughter dating that person kind of thing. Um, but that's irrelevant to the political struggle. That's, you know, the social things are certainly irrelevant to political struggle. And unless those, those um, beliefs are debilitating to the political struggle, and by debilitating, I mean not because the left attempts to make us focus on those things, but they're actually debilitating. They prevent these people from being useful, then those people are, in a sense, enemies on the right. But that's something that should be handled strictly without giving aid and comfort to the left, either by ignoring these type of people or by privately correcting or discussing things with them and trying to come to an understanding about whether you can, in fact, work together for the, for the greater good. And as I also said in the piece, it's also true that that once the left is defeated in the nature of all political conflicts, new conflicts within the new ruling class will arise. And so in a sense, you'll have fresh enemies. I mean, that's recognizing that isn't some kind of cynicism. It's, it's simply a realistic understanding that in any uh, polity, you can only have a, in a ruling class, a certain range of acceptable beliefs. I just think, you know, it's, more or less the Overton window. I just think the Overton window that we need in the future should have like a 10% over, overlap with the Overton window we have today. But in the future, you know, there'll be other fights and other battles and people who are currently friends in the context of the present will become enemies. I mean, that's just the nature of things. But there's really no way around that. What I mean primarily is that right now, the greater goal is defeating the left. And so focusing on problems within the right, especially in a public fashion, is self-defeating. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people seem to have this idea that the key is crafting like the perfect movement, right? Like if you can just get everybody in the proper ideological alignment and you can just produce a uniform um, you know, level of uh, outstanding moral behavior and, and principle and approach and, and the, the best optics, like once you've crafted this thing to exactly what it should be. And only at that moment where you have this morally upstanding um, and sterling uh, uh, movement that, that can, then can you actually go forward and, and change things. And in the meantime, it seems like all the attacks that are absolutely demanded to craft this perfect movement, feed the energy of the left, fall into the frame of the left, uh, reinforce the morality of the left, 
And uh, I think that's really um, bad because like you said, there are lots of people on the right who I disagree with. Lots of people on the right who, who go after me and I just don't ignore them. I just don't, I just don't give them the time of day because there's just way more important things to do. We have enemies that are far more dangerous to the, like you said, the flourishing of our civilization and for just the, you know, the health and, and, and prosperity of the people in our own lives and, and the community around us. And I just don't have time to go around and, and, you know, spar and, and Hector each one of these people into accepting my exact worldview before I address the people who like actively wish that, you know, everyone you know, around me was like just living a horrible life. So I, I think it's a question of priority priorities and understanding that when you go after people on the right, on the left's principles, you're reinforcing the left's principles. You're not purifying you know, your own movement. Oh, I think that's exactly right. And by the way, I, th I think I've fixed the audio distortion. So let me know if it returns uh, and uh, I'll, I'll mute again. When, when you're talking, but I, this is in a sense human nature. I mean, it's it's easy for people to get into internecine fights because it seems it's an easier target. It's an easier way to feel important. It's an easier way to get prominence within a movement because you know, like my joke earlier, which wasn't a joke about Rod and his being perceived by the left as the meme of that screaming woman being ineffective, but uh, being you know an object of fun. You know, it's easier to to adopt that within a movement. I mean, that woman probably is lionized within the movement that she participates in, even though she's ineffective as a political tool. And what you want to be is effective as a political tool. Yeah, I think it's very difficult for people to understand that as a as a priority to then, you know, like I said, I, I think it's very difficult for people to understand what victory looks like, but I don't want I don't want to skip to the end there for that yet because we'll <laughs> we'll talk about this in in a little bit. So the the next criticism that Miller has that I think a lot of people would you know would maybe agree with or find uh, or find useful is your characterization of the Enlightenment. Uh, this is also obviously something I've been critical of, so my audience probably wouldn't be shocked to hear someone criticize the Enlightenment. For, for a lot of people, especially mainstream conservatives, this sounds kind of insane. And Miller kind of brings up that uh, the, the Enlightenment, he says, your definition's too narrow. It's not, uh, it's not noticing a lot of the other things, the freedoms and rights and, and, and uh, positive civic uh, consequences of the Enlightenment. You're ignoring all of those things. Could you go a little more into why you've narrowed the Enlightenment down to kind of those two factors and, and why the rest doesn't really apply in your mind? Sure, because all the good things that people claim for the Enlightenment, or that is propagandists for the Enlightenment, have claimed since the beginning in an attempt to add a desirable sheen to their nasty product, are things that have nothing to do with the Enlightenment. So the rule of law, for example, people sometimes you know, ludicrously talk about as being part of the Enlightenment when that's something that was part of the West for a thousand years, 2000 years, whatever. Uh, yeah, nobody tell the Romans, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, it, it is the case that the Oriental despot is a stereotype in Western thought for good reason. Like essentially all stereotypes, 80 or 90% of it is true. That is outside of the West, the rule of law has not been a thing, generally speaking. But inside the West, it has been a thing. And of course, occasionally uh, honored in the breach. But the fact is that things like the rule of law, natural rights, uh, scientific accomplishments, the scientific revolution, none of those things have anything to do with the Enlightenment. I mean, you can get into hyper-technical sub-argument it's about whether Francis Bacon's desire to improve man's estate is a precursor to the Enlightenment and whether we should focus uh, less on scientific progress and more on spiritual progress or something like that. But the fact is that the propagandists for the Enlightenment, uh, you know, people like Rousseau, basically, you know, French uh, philosophes who, of course, ultimately led to the first instantiation of the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, uh, there's instantiation in the real world, were all focused on primarily emancipation and egalitarianism. They wanted, uh, their definitions might have been slightly different than people might say emancipation today, but they basically wanted to free people of what they thought of as irrational bonds, which in reality are merely recognitions of reality. And so uh, there may be some variations on that, but fundamentally, the things that people claim are part of the Enlightenment are simply not part of the Enlightenment because they all preceded the Enlightenment. And in a few cases probably came along 
in parallel. And you can also argue about like the Scottish Enlightenment, whether that's really part of the Enlightenment or that some of the things that political reforms that came along with that might or might not have been desirable. But those things aren't focused on the core of Enlightenment principles, which again are emancipation and egalitarianism. And I actually, it's funny, I, like in 2018, I did a review you know, on my site. My primary thing is book reviews, or rather my thoughts masquerading as reviews of other people's books. And I did uh, Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, where I castigated Pinker at great length for exactly this error that is, is telling us, lying to us, that the Enlightenment is the thing that produced all the good things of the modern world, when in fact, what it's done is produced all the bad things of the modern world. Well, it's it's a Whig history with a genesis right around the uh, the Enlightenment, right? Like you've just you've got you know there there was this uh, dark time, and then suddenly rationalism or rationality was birthed into the world, and it fundamentally altered uh, the you know the understanding of humanity and the way it could act and you know moving forward you know that was always you know going to create a never ending uh, you know uh, progress that now has caught up with the people who worshiped it and now they're complaining about kind of the end state of of that progress but they don't seem seem to kind of understand that that was the natural conclusion the inevitable conclusion of of kind of their ideology uh, I, I guess actually it might be interesting for a second. I, I've made this argument a few times, but uh, sometimes it's nice to hear someone else make it a different way. And I think <laughs> you'd probably be pretty good at it. W what is the problem with emancipation? What's the problem with a consent-based morality? What, what's the problem with freedom for everyone? Well, because it lead, leads to societal atomization. And well, there's two problems. One is that it leads to societal atomization. And a society that is atomized is never going to be a successful society. You, you can't have a society that operates successfully without having people enmeshed in a web of unchosen bonds. And the second reason is that an emancipatory society denies reality. So for example, when you pretend that there is no uh, unbreakable bond between mother, father, and child, but instead that's something that has to be chosen, or you can have two fathers and a child. This is just a fantasy, a denial of reality, a form of insanity. And so because any form of forced emancipation ends in that latter, that is a complete denial of reality, emancipation is bad. And it, of course, the a stock rejoinder is, you know, well, you know, it, it, didn't we emancipate the slaves kind of thing? I mean, there, there are forms of unjust behavior that need to be remedied by justice, but that has nothing to do with emancipation in the sense that the Enlightenment used it. I mean, you want to be, Rousseau, you don't want to be Rousseau, who had something like five children that he put in an orphanage and most of them died or something like that, because he didn't want the unchosen bonds of having to relate to their mothers and those children. And that's just a kind of you know, particularly nasty example of the core thought of the Enlightenment, which is don't burden me with these unpleasant, unchosen bonds. And, you know, it, and these things are unpleasant. I mean, the fact is that the emancipation is pleasant and sweet if you're a person who has resources and power. And so that's why it, it's attractive. It's, and Americans, of course, have been propagandized into this for centuries, practically, the, and, and the West in general, but Americans in particular, that your life is going to be better if you are not tied down. Um, and in some ways, that's true. I mean, some people's lives are better. They are more enjoyable when they're not tied down. I mean, that's that's just kind of obvious. Um, but it's also true that that's corrosive for a society. And we see the fruits of that today as the West kind of hurdles toward the brick wall at the end with things like no children. When no one has any children, you don't have a society for much longer. The end. I mean, there's many other problems with emancipation uh, and the theories and the political philosophy of the Enlightenment. But in some ways, the most glaring one is the fact that our society is literally killing itself. <laughs> you know, you don't need much more proof than that, that a, a political philosophy is a dead end. Yeah, um, you know, uh, Christopher Lash does a great job of talking about this in Revolt of the Elites, about how the elites have chosen an ideology for that might work purely for themselves advantageously and applied it kind of to the larger world. You know, they, they're not going to suffer the consequences. They have the material resources 
the intellectual firepower, the you know the the, the different the the standing in the hierarchy to not suffer significant backlash at least for some amount of time from adopting this ideology. But by spreading it to the masses, they've kind of doomed them because the vast majority of people can't live in this way. And by promising everyone that you could by simply kind of dissolving. Uh, you know, societal structure with this universal acid of consent, consent-based morality, you, you've ensured kind of the destitution of a large portion of people. It's really uh, intoxicating for people to believe that every, that really, um, you know, upper class living is just a function of, uh, you know, uh, material wealth. And eventually everyone will be able to have that and be able to utilize it. But the truth is, that's not the only thing that makes that happen. It's not the only thing that allows these people to enjoy some of the lifestyles that they do. And pretending that everyone is just going to create, you know, have this, you know, luxury automated space communism is going to, and then be, you know, completely freed of all these bonds and be able to choose everything they want and have no repercussions was just a great way to ensure misery for the vast majority of people. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of people need and want guardrails. And the reductio ad absorbum, of course, of this idea is the is the Marxist idea that if we emancipate everyone uh, from various bonds, then everyone will be an Aristotle or a Mozart and will all you know, work one hour a day and people will, in all their free time, which they will, will be totally unconstrained, they will develop superhuman talents. I mean, that's just not the reality. The reality is that most people are just average people who need to have limitations placed upon them. I mean, not most people, everybody needs to have limitations placed upon him. It yeah. is true that some of the people who are most notable in history are the people who rejected that and proceeded to make their own reality, say Napoleon. Uh, but Napoleon, you know, <laughs> we can't all be Napoleon and nor should we want to be Napoleon. It's just an interesting historical artifact. Yeah, you have to be 5'7", which is a real, <laughs> that's a real deal breaker. It is. Uh, so I, heard, I, read, I read that Ernst Jünger was also 5'7". So, um, you know, there you go. Yeah, manlet theory of history. Uh, you, 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 have to, you have to conquer a continent to overcome your, your gap between 5'7 and 6 foot. It's, it's, a, it's a tragic thing, but uh, consistent. Yeah, so, so if we need these boundaries and these guardrails, right? If it's so important to impose these, then why shouldn't we just show everyone how important they are by constantly applying them to anyone who steps out of bounds on the right. Like if that's good for society in general, why isn't that a good specific political tactic in this instance? Because the kinds of boundaries, you know, unchosen bonds I'm talking about are not fundamentally political ones or mm. political beliefs. They're things like marriage and children and normal sexual behavior and you know, don't rip people off be a high trust society. Uh, if And ultimately, these things are enforced not by law, though you can, in fact, legislate morality. I mean, you can very effectively legislate morality, but you can't only legislate morality. Things have to be enforced from within the society by stigma. And the, But when we're talking about enemies on the right or political enemies more broadly, those things are, are not unchosen bonds or emancipation in the same sense that we're talking about. These things are tactical in essence. And yeah, they're related in some ways you know, kind of to political philosophy. Both these things might be subsumed within the broad heading of political philosophy. But the people on the right that I disagree with, whether on specific political beliefs or on tactics, uh, it's not an emancipatory thing. And I, I also think that one should have a very broad opinion of the types of things that you're willing to tolerate on the right. Uh, by tolerate, I mean, just not get into arguments unnecessarily about. Uh, and that kind of also cuts against the idea that this has any relationship to emancipation on a societal level, uh, which is, you know, as a core political philosophy of the Enlightenment. Now, um, well, some people might say, but no enemies to the right. A lot of you guys spend plenty of time attacking mainstream conservatism, attacking uh, what many people call, you know, con Inc. going after, you know, I don't know, the Sean Hannity's of the world. Isn't that a betrayal of your very principle? Yeah, I mean, th that is a problem. The um, yeah, the uh, my contra temps with with Dreer 
is arguably that because obviously Dreer is mm-hmm. on the right. I mean, he's not on the left. I mean, so he must be on the right. Uh, and I feel a little bit bad. Um, in fact, uh, my, my mother, who's a big Dreer fan, criticized me for this. And my oh, no. response was, uh, was, well, she's 85 and she reads all my stuff. So, you know, there you go. Uh, but she said, you criticized me for this. And I said, well, the principle is that wolves in sheep's clothing should be called out for being wolves. And so I think the the uh, somewhat contradictory tactical principle there is that these people are holding back the right. So they're not enemies in the sense that they're uh, that they're friends of the left. I mean, you know, the, Rod Dreher is never going to be friends uh, with the left, not because he doesn't want to be. He's very happy to suck up to people who are kind of in the moderate left, but they would never accept him. And but these people and Con Inc and Sean Hannity or, or what have you. I don't really watch any TV, so I barely know who Sean Hannity yeah, is. <laughs> but um, yeah, they they uh they are are tactical enemies in the sense that they prevent us from achieving our overall goal, which is winning against the left. And so, so it's an unfortunate necessity that such obstacles have to be cleared out of the way. Uh, that's just you. Know, necessary part of political life. I mean, I wish it were differently that everything could be handled uh, sub rosa quietly in an efficient way, but that's just not the way humans interact with each other. So it has to be done, but I think it needs to be in every instance carefully scrutinized as to whether it's necessary and whether you're doing it for useful purposes or for some other purpose, like self-aggrandizement or because attacking the left is difficult and dangerous and attacking someone else on the right isn't difficult and dangerous. And it gives you that sweet dopamine hit when, you know, the Twitter likes go up, uh, you know, I mean, you have to consider why you're doing it. Uh, but it, it, it sometimes it just has to be done. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's a, a important uh, delineation there. You know, there are some people, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell who are just like malicious, right? Like there, I think there's, oh. I, I've, I, I think they deserve, you know, your ire. I think they are completely controlled opposition. They're worse, you know. They're they're actively taking steps to to harm the right. Um, and I don't think that they they qualify as the right because their their job is to to control it, not to actually lead it. They have no actual intention of bettering the lives of the people who they're supposed to be representing or or, or leading. And so I don't feel bad going after those kind of people at all. There are other people um, who, like you're talking about maybe with Rod, you know, who have good intentions and uh, in, in many ways could be aligned, uh, but there's a tactical issue, right? Like you're talking about that, that is a serious problem that continuously holds up the right. And if you just let it sit there, then it's a, then it's a serious problem. And in those cases, it's better, if possible, to come alongside and make it a, a teachable thing rather, you know, even if it's public, rather than maybe a direct attack on intentions, um, which, which I think, you know, I don't think you made any attack on intentions there. But I think that's really important for people because... The more I run into these people, the more I interact with a lot of these people, the more I am surprised how many I think genuinely just didn't don't understand the problem. Like it's very easy, I think, maybe from kind of our corner of the Internet that's been a little more on the on the edge of kind of the theory stuff and and, and what's going on to, to say, oh, every everyone like this is just completely controlled opposition. They're they're disingenuous. Uh, they're just grifting, blah, 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 blah. And you know, fair. There are there are people who do that. I'm not saying there aren't, but I'm just saying you'd be surprised at how often in those interactions people just genuinely didn't understand a misstep they were making and how a a a, a correction from someone who has the right ant smell, who who is on side, is actually very useful and is actually taken on board for those people uh, when they feel like it's coming from the right place. I think that's absolutely right, and I think that. As the right gains power, which, of course, I mean, this is probably beyond the scope of our conversation today, but but I maintain that that is, is likely to happen in the near future. These kind of conversations become more productive. They build on themselves. I wouldn't quite go so far as to say you'd see some kind of preference cascade, but I think you would see more productive unity on the right than you tend to see now. And part, I mean, this is part of the problem of being a fractured and largely 
uh, not defeated, but you know, a, a relatively powerless group that you tend to have arguments among each uh, among yourselves. I mean, famously, uh, Eastern. I mean, I'm half Hungarian, and uh, uh, my grandfather was was heavily involved with the. Hungarian emigre community, that is emigre meaning post people who left after the communists took over in 1945. And, uh, and you know, the, the joke used to be that emigre arguments were so vicious because the stakes were so low. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, I mean, my grandfather didn't, you know, he was a, he was a very wise man and didn't indulge in these kind of things, but a lot of people did. And so I think there was a problem like that on the right. I think weirdly or paradoxically having more power encourages growing up behavior. So let's hope that's true. Yeah. More to lose means you actually have to make social negotiations in a way that those with just nothing to lose don't. Yes. Um, there, there's only purity spiraling. Uh, in, in some of those situations. All right. So I think we understand no enemies to the right at this point. We, we get, get the idea of this. So let's talk a little bit about victory. Now, obviously we can't, you know, we're, we're not staring into a crystal ball here. We're not going to completely predict the future, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the aspects of victory, the things that people need to understand. Cause when I, I, I talk to a lot of these people, who, you know, very principled conservative, you know, conning guy, they seem to have some idea that like what victory looks like is eventually progressives just kind of reach across the aisle, shake their hand, you hand them the keys to the global American empire uh, due to the strength of their arguments as Lee Greenwood kind of, you know, swells in the background. <laughs> And I, I'm just thinking, what, what, you know, what does that, even, you know, what does victory look like to you? Like, what does that do? Do you think the marketplace of ideas just hands you a plaque and then you, you own it? So, what should you know the right expect with victory? What, what does, what do actual victories look like compared to fake victories? Yeah, I mean, I think the, there's two elements of, of of victory. The the broader, again, I hate to good old theory cell, as they say, uh, political philosophy question. Then, of course, the practical question of how to how to actually administer a victory and what to do thereafter. But the fundamental problem that the right faces is that the Enlightenment vision is extremely seductive and has the benefit of many years, centuries of propaganda uh, and more recently, an aggressive set of propaganda. So uh, Ross Douthat, who, you know, I'm of mixed mind about Douthat. He's, he's somewhat on that uh, con ink camp, but he also frequently in the past had a lot to say. He was the one who first pointed out that what the left sells, and I use this without attribution, sorry, Ross, in my I am 1776 piece, which is that what the left sells is what the serpent sold to Adam and Eve, that ye shall be as gods. And this is a very seductive thing to fight against. You know, when you, your response is, I can offer you reality and unchosen bonds and working together to human flourishing, that sounds pretty lame. You know, gods working hard. I mean, who's not going to pick the gods part? So, so fundamentally, the task is to discredit the left. Because let's say the marketplace of ideas did hand us a plaque and the keys to Congress. And let's say we actually, you know, we had... Everyone in the Senate and everyone in the House and all the leadership was somewhere to the right of Blake Masters. Uh, I mean, that really might be productive in the short term in the sense of passing legislation and doing things within the government that were just awesome. But it's also true that that's likely to be a short term thing, short meaning in decades or maybe even centuries, simply because the vision of the left is eternally seductive. So several generations later, people will say, well, how about emancipation? Emancipation sounds great. And, you know, Blake Masters, the 13th, you know, the 13th of his name is, uh, you know, just isn't giving us that sweet emancipation that I read in this 18th century book is so sweet. And so let's have some more emancipation. I mean, the cycle and sub-cycles within the cycle has gone on for, for centuries. So until this entire political philosophy, this way of viewing mankind is regarded, again, as I said in my piece, as akin to the cult of Mithras, something from the distant past that didn't work out and no one really cares about except archaeologists and people who are play a lot of trivial pursuit. Until that happens, the left will always be a threat to human flourishing. So you have to completely discredit the left. This isn't a call to like, you know, 
get rid of everyone who has these beliefs because these beliefs will always return. People have to, the, 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 the beliefs have to discredit themselves. It, you, and it's not a question of writing hot opinion pieces that discredit them. It's a question of reality reimposing itself. So what this looks like isn't really clear, but it almost certainly means some kind of you know, societal crack up where people are like, yeah, this just didn't work out. Uh, and hopefully that would discredit the left forever. I don't have much, you know, I don't know how much hope I have for that, certainly in my lifetime. But without it, the struggle just will go on forever. In a sense, the struggle always does go on forever because the serpent and Adam and Eve were long ago. But we shouldn't forget that this set of beliefs as a political philosophy was only, as I said, first instantiated in 1789. Before that, no one th except a few like you know, pinheaded losers thought this had any relevance to anything. And we we can return not to that. I am a violent uh, opponent of nostalgia, but we can move forward, I guess is a better term, to a society that has the many not all, many of the same opinions as people did in 1600 with respect to political philosophy and has forgets that the Enlightenment ever existed because once it didn't exist and it's entirely feasible that it could not exist uh, again in the future. The, the reason that people push Whig history, as you referred to earlier, the idea that progress has a leftward arrow and history has a leftward arrow is simply because the left wants people to believe that. But it's simply not true. You just have to break the spell. Uh, so that, that as a you know, political philosophy thing, that's the first step. How to do that, how to rule thereafter is a is a somewhat different question. Um, and how a victory would look like in that case uh, or what kind of tactical moves might be made if you had a temporary political victory on the path to this complete discrediting. Uh, that's I mean, I have ideas on that as well. And they're fairly straightforward. Uh, they are actually, I'm actually writing a piece on the, uh, not published yet, on the denazification after World War II, and it has a lot of analogs to that. But it, that's a really, well, important, practically, a secondary concern to discrediting the leftist project entirely. Yeah, I like that you pointed out that this is kind of something that's eternal. It, it is a part of the human condition, like you said, from from the very beginning. That's why it's inculcated kind of in into... Uh, religion and tradition, but it, it's something that you can never really escape because it's societal entropy, right? Like every every society eventually reaches some point where it's built built up enough uh, uh, scaffolding, you know, where it feels like it can hold things up no matter what. It's not subject to the same laws, the same uh, inevitabilities of kind of human existence, and so they start to believe, as you said. You know, you, we can be as gods, which is why I think that the this is why I think that the Tower of Babel is such a recurring theme, right? I, I just see it so often in in everything that I, I read or the things that I study. You you look at, uh, you know the the way that um, you know Spangler talks about how societies eventually calcify their institutions, you know, are kind of holding back the you know, the natural order, and eventually people lose their connection to kind of the consequences of forgetting uh kind of what comes next uh in in the cycle and so they kind of lose themselves in their ability to play with forms and deny reality and so what we're really looking at now is not something completely unique but is instead simply um maybe the the greatest manifestation of this uh of this continuous part of the cycle it's it's the most intense one where people have been able to deny reality so thoroughly for an extended amount of time and and could truly believe that the consequences of ignoring natural hierarchy uh will never come due uh it seems like that because we have invested so much into the into the infrastructure of our society to kind of invert those hierarchies and, and delay those consequences. And what you need is not so much like total, you know, tact one quick tactical victory or control of, of all of the apparatus of government so much as it is to simply, like you said, discredit the left's myth that they can just keep this trick up forever, that they can always deny the inevitable consequences of denying nature and denying uh, hierarchy and thinking that, you know, the, they'll just always be able to offer this to their subjects 
who you know eventually once this thing falls apart will suddenly and very quickly understand that that's not ever actually the case yeah i i think all that's again precisely right i think the interesting wrinkle for us even though this is in a sense an eternal recurrence certain aspects though probably relatively small ones, even if the Enlightenment project occur at the end of all civilizations, as you pointed out. But I think what makes it different for us or potentially different for us is technology. And mm -hmm. so I'm a big techno-optimist or rather a uh, techno-optimist. Uh, I frequently say techno-optimist, but I'm a guarded techno-optimist. But leaving that part aside, the technology both allows the extension of the Enlightenment project through propaganda and a variety of other technological controls, as well as doing things with technology, whether that's transhumanism or other kinds of things. Uh, I mean, I don't believe that a lot of these things like tra true transhumanism are, are possible or will happen. But nonetheless, technology allows the left to continue its project. But it also allows the society to uh, change very rapidly in a way that simply wasn't possible in the past. That is, you know, in the past, if you're like an average person in an average society, you probably barely noticed when most things happen unless they happen in your specific locality, because that was the nature of the ancient world or even of the world up until uh, probably the, some point uh, in the late Renaissance or early modern period. And so uh, to me, one of the most fascinating things, the most imponderable things is what will the impact of technology be upon this contest? Uh, I think that... Um, most likely it's going to be benefiting the right uh, because I think speed of communication is useful. And I think that the left deliberately hobbles itself for ideological reasons in in, in using technology competently. Uh, I mean, you see this, for example, in, in uh, Elon Musk's uh, success with space engineering and the, uh, the lefts, that is the government's, total inability to launch rockets, or for that matter, Jeff Bezos' inability to launch rockets, which is probably due at some level to philosophical uh, denial of reality <clears throat> in the case of the left by hiring not the best people uh, for ideological reasons. And you write, writ, write that large across a wide range of technology, that means the right is likely to be able to use technology more competently. But that's just a theory. I mean, I have no, there's no historical analog for this. So who knows? I mean, I just find it endlessly fascinating, but uh, it's very hard to make any predictions that aren't just guesses. Well, I, I want to pick your brain about uh, my technological doomerism here in, in just a minute. Um, but uh, as we get ready to transition there, guys, we're uh, going to talk about our last subject and then uh, get to the super chats. We've got some stacking up right now. So if you won't have any questions for myself or Charles, uh, you can go ahead and put those in now. Uh, but one thing I wanted to pick your brain about uh, before we do that is I think there is a technological problem for the right. And it might just be my inability. Like I, I don't have enough uh, technological imagination in this. I'm, I'm, I'm more than willing to admit that's probably the case. But one problem I see and something that I think that the right has to overcome is that, you know, the juvenile talks about, you know, power wants to centralize. It always wants to centralize. And one of the main ways that power centralizes is by kind of demolishing the authorities of the path, the past in order to offer you know, those who are outside, did the disenfranchised, uh, the, the periphery, to offer them rights or privileges or, or other things uh, that they otherwise would, would not have had under a more natural order. And one of the thing problems I think we really have is that the technology seems to uh, create this almost infinitely, right? Because technology seems to facilitate the uh, de the demolition of these boundaries facilitate all these competing social spheres that used to keep uh, you know governments from completely centralizing like church or um, or you know loyalty to to your area your tribe your family you know all these different things it's able to kind of demolish these things and and provide substitutes digitally or even if they're weak substitutes as I'm sure both of us would probably argue uh, they do feel like emancipation to the average person and then that authority is ceded to the government and the, they're able to again centralize more and more powers they can provide 
this theoretical liberty to the people. I wonder if technology can, if, if technology can ever solve that problem or if technology is always uh, going to have this aspect of completely liquefying kind of those civilizational boundaries that kind of kept um, leftism or societal entropy, kind of however you want to define this thing at bay? It's a great question. Much of what you describe, of course, is simply human nature. I mean, recognizable mm-hmm. long before the Enlightenment in, in Greek sure. city-states, for, for example. But I, the point about technology accelerating this is, is a good one. I think that the the only, just off the cuff, I'll probably have to think about this some more. Maybe I'll lie awake at night thinking about it tonight. But the, the I think the answer is that you have to have superseding bonds or superseding opportunities, or both. So superseding bonds, I mean, you can imagine a, a, and I think it's probably necessary for to have a reborn or renewed or you know, follow-on society in the West, a religious revival. Um, you know, I, I, I prefer Christianity. I think on our last stream, I, I, I said, I said, but I was misheard because of the way I Im- Poor, I poorly spoke that I did not believe in Christianity, but I am very, very, very Christian. And I think that's the a good binding religion. But there might be something else, certainly. And I think that if you have a binding component, and it's not also why I'm big on space exploration, for example, I think that is a binding societal thing that can help bridge the gaps that naturally arise inside of any society. But at the same time, it's also true that you can't have a society that's overly heterogeneous and still hope to achieve those things. Because if you have both heterogeneity and uh, the technology enabling people to politicians, leaders to appeal to people's desire for emancipation and power and prestige, that's always going to end poorly. I mean, it always ends poorly because that's just the cycle of civilizations, Mm -hmm. but you don't want to end poorly in 25 years because, you know, (laughs) that doesn't work out real well. So I think that the... um, you have to provide a binding goal or a binding opportunity. And then again, we come back there to space. And maybe this is kind of you know, Pollyanna-ish of me, but I actually think that it, whether that's manned space, space exploration or something else, I, I think the possibilities of space exploration and space achievement have kind of gotten a bad uh bad name or bad odor on the right as some kind of utopian leftist project like like Star Trek. And I don't think that that's true at all. So I can think you can imagine, and maybe it's a reach, a society that has a binding ethos, religious, moral, uh, whatever it may be, as well as a binding set of goals that manages to overcome those centripetal forces that are inherent in every human civilization that are, I agree, exacerbated by technology. And maybe technology can be used to enhance the the centralizing, I mean, centralizing in the good sense, I mean, the strengthening forces that a society can have. Uh, uh, What that would look like precisely is is hard for me to say. Uh, And so I'm hesitating because it sounds kind of, even as I say it, it sounds fantastical. But, you know, I'm going with it. Yeah, little more Imperium of Man, little less uh, uh, Starfleet uh, exactly. Academy. Precisely, yeah. the, the yeah. Solar Imperium. Here we yeah. come. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and uh, pivot over to our super chats here, so we don't run too long. Uh, but Charles Wells, we get ready to do that. Can you tell people where to find all your stuff? Yes, I write at theworthyhouse.com, where I write uh, some pieces that are just original analysis pieces of various types. I also write, as I said earlier, a lot of book reviews that are not really book reviews, but are my own thoughts masquerading as book reviews. So I also typically talk about the books. I published one. I don't just talk about things like this. I published one, for example, this morning <coughs> on St. John Chrysostom's thoughts on wealth and poverty. So, uh, you know, not, not so much political, but a question of you know, whether, how and why and what are the details of Christian almsgiving. So if you like into that, you can check stuff like that out as well, too. Excellent. So we've got Sean uh, Weiland here for 999. Thank you very much, sir. As a right-wing owner of an exit planning firm helping people sell mid-market business, tax, uh, uh, business tax-free, how can I meet other like-minded people in merger and acquisitions to grow the rights economic base. 
Uh, well, Sean, there's a lot of people who are setting up different things. I don't think there's a lot of people, you know, forming things around merger and acquisition, but maybe there should be. Um, there's a lot of people setting up kind of these basket weaving groups so you can meet people personally. Uh, but there's also, I think, uh, a lot of value, of course, in investing in community organizations where people might not explicitly say, I have right wing goals or whatever. But if you're putting yourself in a much more religious, traditional community, you're far more likely to interact with people who are going to have kind of those shared goals and values, even if they aren't explicitly having them. I also know that places like New Foundings, I think, is putting together um opportunities for to connect uh you know p uh, people with like-minded people for uh for hiring and that kind of thing so you can reach out to organizations like that to make sure that you're surrounding yourself and you're you know staffing your business with people who might share your goals and your values and then there's also i think an aspect of you know uh, you know uh, forgive me for saying this but you know be the change you want to see in the world you know a lot of people are right now in a scenario where they recognize this problem they understand the importance of building these communities these connections these networks but the everyone's first question is well where do i plug in right like where's where's my uh where's my uh, uh tender for conservative <laughs> business people and the answer is like you've got none of this stuff this infrastructure doesn't exist people have to go out and make it and so you know that's not an option for everyone but if it is an option for you uh it, even in small ways uh taking that action you might be the first one doing it there there really is not that much of it out there yet and so uh, that you might have to kind of be, be the first mover on that stuff if you want to see it as a reality. I, I totally second all of that. I, I affirmatively <clears throat> second the uh, nod to New Founding. I think it's newfounding.com, which is run by Matt Peterson and, and Nate Fisher. I know those guys, uh, but they have a group of businesses and a growing group of businesses in this area uh, job boards, things like that. So I, I would strongly suggest talking to them. And I would, I would actually email me. I used to be an MA lawyer. I, I know various people uh, in this area doing various things. So, so I would encourage you just to email me or, or DM me on, on Twitter, and we, we can we can talk further about it. But I think all those things are true. But I think there are already people, particularly new founding, but also others that are already setting the groundwork for this. And if we go back to what I said earlier as the right gains power, these things become more serious and grow very rapidly on themselves. So I strongly encourage you to, to follow up with me. Yeah, I know there are already um, kind of people, again, in our sphere who you, know, you wouldn't have, you know, three or four years ago, just, you know, posting random stuff online. But now they've made enough connections and they're familiar enough with people who have a little more serious sway and they're putting together conferences that they're not always ones you see they're not always things that are that are publicly advertised but there are people working on this stuff uh who you would probably know who who are are taking action it's just not always out in public yet so so you know definitely take action but don't think that just because you don't see something right now doesn't mean that other people aren't kind of working to make that a reality in places that you might not be able to see at the moment because they're still trying to get the ball rolling in kind of crucial steps before anything you know kind of comes out publicly uh let's see here we've got uh ngs here uh i'm not sure what that denomination is but thank you very much for your donation uh, how can we liberate ourselves from liberalism and its ideological grip on Western societies, its worldview and its boundless individualism? Well, I think one thing is to remember that we're, we'll never be completely free from this, right? Like this is uh, going to be part of us. All of us grew up in this. All of us were part of this. All of this, this was the water we swam in our whole lives. This is the way that we perceive the world. It's kind of the ingrained value. Uh, you know, it's the worldview that that you understand kind of just as your basic way you look at the world. And so completely escaping this is is probably difficult. Whatever happens is going to be post-liberal, meaning it, it will it will take parts of liberalism. It will take things that were valuable in some way and it will move forward. But it's also important to remember that I think as Charles kind of was was alluding to earlier, a lot of things that people attach to liberalism aren't 
uh, you know, they are, or the Enlightenment in general are not, you know, specific to that movement. The, the rule of law and, and you know, the, the not being completely controlled, every aspect of your life being controlled by a despot. Those things aren't unique to the Enlightenment. They weren't just, you know, brought up in you know, the, the late 1600s, or early 1700s. Those things pre-existed those movements. And moving beyond liberalism doesn't mean abandoning every aspect of kind of those Western uh, values that I think a lot of people want to hold on to. It's just understanding the aspects that I think, uh, uh, again, Charles was talking about that, that really are completely isolating and, and destructive to the social fabric. Yeah, I agree. And individualism and liberalism are fundamentally weakness. And as the meme goes, uh, you know, hard times make strong men. So in the cycle of things, when the strong men come back, they'll by definition uh, be opposed to individualism and liberalism. Did you did you see the uh, the video of the waitress catching the uh, chair and throwing it aside on Twitter? Did you get to catch uh, I that? Did. I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, that that was my favorite uh, my favorite uh, moment uh, on the internet of this week. The the week uh, or uh, hard times make strong uh, waffle house employees. I think yes, I saw several memes already on that. The, yeah. yeah, very good. Very good stuff. Yeah. yeah, honing a whole different uh, generation of of waffle house employee prepared to to deal with what comes next. Uh, Macedonian accelerationist for four ninety nine. Thank you very much, sir. Charles, would you be interested in debating or having a discussion with Curtis Yarvin sometime soon? Well, I, I see the Macedonian accelerationist has uh, has stolen the Argiad star, which I have recently adopted as the symbol of foundationalism, my own political philosophy. So now the Macedonians will be after me. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but the um, and I'm aware of the Macedonians, uh, you know, trade market. So I'm, I'm I'm in big trouble. But you know, I, I'm a, a I'm a fan of Yarvin or I'm a fan of Yarvin's earlier work. I'm less a fan of his his more recent work, as, as we've discussed in the past. In fact, uh, I have started a debate uh, with uh, with Curtis, uh, a dialogue similar to the one uh, that I did for I Am 1776, and he uh, disappeared uh, because my power was so great. So I'm all for debating Yarvin, but he has he has uh, have been given multiple opportunities to do so. Um, I would not debate him. Uh, in a form that is not tightly controlled because he has the bad habit of uh, talking over his interlocutors in an attempt to uh, to kind of dominate the conversation. So I think written debates are, are better because otherwise it would devolve into a shouting match. And I'm quite good at shouting matches, but they're not productive for the audience. So yeah, I'm all for talking to, to Yarvin. I've met Yarvin several times. You know, we, we talk occasionally. I'm also the author of the best known hit piece on Yarvin, on the internet <laughs> uh, a couple of years ago. So maybe we should have a debate, but, uh, but so far it has not come off. Yeah. I think he, I, I think he just had a child, so he might, he might be a little busy here. Yes, uh, it's fine. In, I mean, I'm not saying future. he necessarily yeah. dropped out because he fears my power, but I prefer that interpretation. No, that's, that's exactly what you should assert at all times. Yeah. You, you having, having ripped your shirt off and bared your manly chest to Yarvin, he, you know, quickly submitted and ran, uh, ran screaming into the night. Yeah, you, you are taller. You're gonna you're gonna mog him with your height. Is that, the, <laughs> is that the plan? All right. So there you go, guys. Uh, let's see. Uh, one more here. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm gonna butcher this name. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for your donation, uh, Muzio Scavola. Sorry, I'm, I'm particularly horrible with pronunciations. Uh, progressivism piggybacks on technology uh, technolo uh, on technology advancement to prove that we are better people than uh, before technology has nothing to do with spiritual growth. Uh, yeah, again, this is something that I think uh, both Charles and I brought up multiple times in uh, this discussion. You know, the idea that, you know, the just, just over time, things have gotten better in certain areas like technology and kind of, I think in many ways, technology has stood in for kind of the miracle in progressive theology. It's, it's allowed these amazing things where people live much longer and they have these interconnected lives and they're able to do things that were unimaginable, basically functionally magic, you know, just 50, 60 years ago. 
And when you're doing that kind of thing, it can be easy to pretend that those uh, technological advancements are a function of your ideology, um, the, the ruling ideology. But as those technological advancements slow, as we see you know, the quality of life of people kind of uh, collapsing under certain things and, and technology not really delivering on the promises that uh, it's been given. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I was told that we were going to be landing on the moon. Uh, and we were going to take aircrafts to the moon like we were just going to Atlanta. You know, that, that was a, just explained to be a near future thing. And, you know, here we are. We can't even, you know, like, uh, like Charles said, get get some government uh, funded rocket, uh, you know, into outer space on a regular basis. So I think um, I, I think kind of as those different uh, technological promises fall short, the magic of of progressivism kind of also falls short. It starts failing. It starts becoming harder and harder to believe in. And it really does evolve into something that's purely about power. And whenever uh, you, you kind of lose your political formula and you're sitting entirely on raw power, it's always a dangerous place for a, a ruling elite. Yep, completely agree. Nothing to add. All right. All right, guys, I think that's everything. Let me double check to make sure that we didn't miss any here. Uh, but while I'm double checking, guys, if this is your first time on the channel, as always, please go ahead and subscribe. Uh, if you have not been listening or you'd like to listen uh, to this in purely audio form, you don't want to stare at the, uh, the picture of, of Charles here. Uh, then you can uh, go ahead and subscribe over on uh, Apple or on uh, Spotify or any of the main uh, podcast platforms. If you do subscribe, please go ahead and give a rating and a review, especially the reviews. They really help a lot, bump everything up in the old algorithm and everything. Uh, but that said, I think we got to everything. So want to say thank you to the audience for showing up. Uh, a lot of great questions here. Very interesting uh, and thought provoking. Uh, obviously there's also been a, a, a challenge issue to Yarvin, uh, <laughs> so that, that very, very important. Everyone should, should take note, but, uh, Charles, I really appreciate you coming on. Always a great discussion with you. Yes, indeed. I appreciate being invited. Thank you. All right, guys. We'll have a great one. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.